It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Thank you, Laban. It's a pleasure to be here. We're very blessed. And uh, first things first, how the hell are you? I'm pretty good, I think. Yeah, I've um, recently turned 60, which is a big milestone. So, or at least I'm, I'm told it is. But um, I don't feel any different from 59, I must say. Um, but there I am. I've, I've made it this far. Well, you look great. I think you're a Gemini stalking oh, yes, your birthday. I am. Uh, recently celebra- celebrated my own milestone birthday, and you look great for 60. Thank you. You looking forward to 70? Yeah, I am. I am looking forward to 70. Um, as a Gemini, there's two of me. So uh, there's <laughs> Peter Mitchell, the newsreader, and there's Peter Mitchell, who uh, has uh, five children and a wife and stays at home and um, in lockdown in these crazy days. So, yeah, um, I'm, I'm blessed to make it this far. You are blessed, and uh, from some of the digging I have been doing, Peter, the the overwhelming consensus is that you are an incredibly humble, likable individual. Do you think that you have any other legacy that you might leave when you finally depart this world? Um, look, I guess uh, I've just tried to do the right thing and be um, a role model without being a role model for my children, just to say... Um, if you are punctual, uh, if you keep yourself clean and on the straight and narrow, who knows what will happen. But th- that's a good start in life is to ad- adopt those things and, and see what happens. So I don't know about any legacy, but I'm, I'm just uh, grateful to have made it this far and, uh, as you say, uh, you know, be in this position. Because you're, you're a man of many talents and some of which include being a published author as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wrote a, a really amazing book on Peter Thompson, the Australian golfer. What was that experience like for you? Wonderful. Uh, it was a fantastic experience. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life to to write a book and, uh, you know, be a slave to a keyboard with uh, two children I had at the time then uh, and a wife who were dragging me, trying to drag me away from the keyboard to say, how about some time with us? But I knew that as a project to get it done, it was an important deal um, just, just for me and, and for my reputation, just to say, I've done it. I've got the book done. It's on the bookshelf and there it is. It's been published. And uh, the whole experience of getting it done was uh, surreal in a way because it just, uh, it just seemed to be the right thing. Everything was aligned at the time. I, I just started at Channel 7 
as the weekend news presenter and uh, I had a bit more time on my hands Monday to Friday. Um, so I thought I'm going to write that book about Peter Thompson because uh, he deserves one. There should be a book about Peter Thompson on, on sporting shelves in Australia because of what he's done, winning the British Open five times. But there was so much more than that. As a, um, as a very uh, proud Melbourneian, he, he um, deserved a spot on the bookshelf. So I, I took it upon myself to, to uh, embark on this project to see if I could write a book about him. And, and uh, you know, through a lot of, um, you know, weaving and dodging, I managed to get it done in the end. Brilliant, and and uh, you managed to sell two thousand copies around the world. Yeah, yeah. Which you know, you was never really that important to you. It was more about yeah, the mo- legacy. Money wasn't wasn't the issue. I didn't do it to sell books. I I did it so that I could fill that gap in the bookshelf and have a book about Peter Thompson because there wasn't one there. Um, and in along the journey, I got to interview some amazing people surrounding, uh, caught up in his life. Um, not not least him as an incredible man with um, a deep intellect um, who who've often found it weird that he made his name out of whacking a little white ball around green grass, but um, he he sort of had this quandary in his life that uh, he he never worked a day in his life of, of a hard job uh, of toil getting his hands dirty, but. He whacked a little white ball around and, and made his name that way. Um, he, he couldn't sometimes put the two together, but he was a fantastic guy. In the end, uh, initially, he didn't want a bar of it, didn't want, to, didn't want to know me. But in the end, he came around and we became not close, but he was like a father figure to, to, uh, to me towards the end. And, uh, and I was very, very sad when he passed away a couple of years ago. He got Parkinson's disease. And uh, his wife told me that after that he went downhill pretty quickly. So, you know, it was very sad, but um, I'm sure they'd still love him around today. Do you think there's any other amazing athletes that you've had a chance to meet or interact with that don't have a book that should have one? <laughs> a good point. I um, should go looking, but um, that one stood out to me only because at that time I was right into the game of golf. Um, pro golf in Australia. This was, you know, Greg Norman was just coming through and, and yeah, and, and was taking all of Australia on his back. Um, and his story is amazing in itself, but there have been a few books written about him. Um, but as he was coming through, and I, I sort of found out Peter Thompson, and there was, there was no book about him. So that was the whole thing. That was the whole thing it was based on. And, and out of me writing the book, I, I sort of, um, uh, seven saw my interest in sport and, and I got a gig at the Barcelona Olympics, which was an, another wonderful experience just to be there in the same town as Michael Jordan was with the Dream Team at the time for the wow. USA basketball. Didn't bump into him or anything or, or get an interview with him, but uh, he was, he, I was just chuffed that I was in the same city as Michael Jordan at the same time. Um, just, just one experience, but uh, we Australia had a really good Olympics, won a lot of gold medals, and it was a great experience to take back with me um, back home again to the family that I hadn't seen for a few weeks. So, yeah. I think there's a real lesson there, Peter. You talk about uh, the resistance that 
Peter Thompson had initially, you mm. trying to write this book about his life, right? Yeah. And and you finally wore him down and, and ended up, you know, changing the course of your life as a result. Yeah. Where do you think that persistence came from in your being? I, I'm not sure, but it must be it must have been in the background somewhere along my my roots because um, I've always uh, bristled at if someone says, oh, you'll never do that. Or all you have to do to tell me, you'll never do that. Or you're not good enough. Or you'll never make it because of this. I, it's, it becomes ammunition to me. Yeah. I, I take it on board and go, really? Is that what you really think? Oh, well, I'll show you. <laughs> so uh, it wasn't so much when Peter said no, it was um, my view was, hang on, it's not your project, mate. This is my book. I'm, write, I'm writing it about you. Um, I don't have to get your approval. Um, and in the end, he said, oh, it's your project. I don't want a cent from it, but I'll answer any question you give me. And that was the, that was the door opening. So I said, really, you, I can contact you. And he said, you can ring me any time. I'll answer any question you have for me. He answered it in his way, not the way I was expecting, but I had to have the questions ready. That was, yeah. that was his way of saying, mate, it's over to you. If you want to do your research and look into it, knock yourself out. And I did ring him. I rang him at his house in Turak and he had a holiday house in Port Douglas and he gave me that number too and I constantly rang him. And we'd be on the phone for like an hour and a half, you know, a couple of nights a week and he'd always end it the same way saying, okay, I reckon that's about enough for now. And I'd hang up and I'd say, oh, God, it's got some great stuff there. Transcribe it all out. And away I went, where does that fit in? And the chap divided it up into chapters. Okay, that goes there. And, and, and that pretty soon you've got a, the, the skeleton of a book and it's up to you to put the flesh on the bones. How would you feel if someone came and approached you, Peter, and said, I want to write a book about your life? Well, uh, probably the same way. <laughs> um, you know, because only because... A lot of people think news reading is a boring job. You sit there, you look down the auto queue, and that's what you do every night. Um, people say to me, a lot of people say, "Mate, Groundhog Day. You're doing the same. You've done the same thing for thirty years. What's going on?" So it's not Groundhog Day. It, there's no two bulletins are ever the same. There's always something different. And if you if you work in a newsroom and you you get that adrenaline rush from breaking news when a story comes in or it's, it's filtering in at first, like, uh, you know, Steve Irwin's died at Port Douglas. He's, he's uh, been killed by a stingray. Everyone's going, what are you talking about? And it just suddenly all hell breaks loose and it's, you know, Peter Brock and, and Steve Irwin died in the same week. And, you know, you just can't prepare for those sorts of things. And breaking news happens all the time. So no two bulletins are ever the same. It's been a fascinating job to just to be there and, and from where I sit at six o'clock and present what I present, I've had a front row seat in the news for 30 years and the things I've seen, the vision coming in, it's just, I shake my head too. I just look at it and go, my goodness, you know, it's just been a privileged position. Um, and, you know, when you say, say a book, um, I suppose if someone approached me, I'd have to I'd have to look into it and say, well, what are your intentions and all that sort of thing, which is what Peter Thompson said to me. Show me what you've done so far. Yeah. And, and I did show him and he said, oh, well, you're obviously on the right track. 
Um, so I'll probably do the same thing, but whether people would buy it and read it, who knows? Well, I, from the outside, it seems like you've lived a very fascinating life. And just on the news side of things, Peter, what is the most amazing news story that you had the privilege of breaking? Well, I, I always go back to um, the day Princess Diana died and that came through at about one o'clock on the Sunday in Melbourne. And we knew that her boyfriend had been killed. Dodie, Elfaid. That's it? Yeah. Yep. Um, but no one thought that Princess Diana would die. Oh, she survived. She's, she's survived the crash. She's going to be all right. Uh, no one comprehended that she was going to die. And then the news came through, Princess of Wales has died. And we were just about to start a, a football match, live football match on Channel 7, and I broke in with the, the you know, news flash. Uh, footy commentator crossing to the newsroom, there's a big announcement. And I'm standing there, hairs on the back of my neck are going up. Um, Princess of Wales has been killed in a car accident in Paris. And I threw back to the commentator and his face was just white. And I've got, his mouth was, and I've gone, I don't think I'm ever going to read something as important as that ever again in my life. And then uh, along came September 11th. 2001, uh, Talking Footy was going to air. It was a Monday night and the buildings were... I'd gone to bed and my wife came and woke me up and said, there's something happening in New York. You should come and have a look at this. And I came out and looked at, and I saw the first building go down. Jesus. And the phone went. It was the news director saying, um, you've seen what's going on? I said, yep. He said, get some sleep. We're going live to air. This is the before sunrise even. We're going live to air from 5 a.m. And this was around midnight. Uh, and we, 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 that was the start of sort of rolling coverage. So I'll never forget that. And then uh, along comes Black Saturday, our bushfires here, um, 2009 and... I wasn't working on that day, but I was, I was at home just looking out at that bubbling, hideous sky yeah. with that shocking northerly just throwing everything around, 46 degrees or something, and just going, oh, this is madness. And then, then the fires all sparked away. And the next day I was sent to Whittlesea at the staging ground there and all the people were coming down from King Lake and who'd lost all their homes and... There were kids bawling their eyes out who'd lost their schools, their homes, all their possessions. Some of their friends even had been killed. And we're in the midst of it all and just thinking, my goodness, this is, this is hideous. But those, those stories happen all, you know, the, the big ones really stand out to you. Um, we were sent down to Beaconsfield for the two miners when they came out. Fantastic. Uh, we did the news for a week down in Beaconsfield. It was it was magnificent i've never been to launceston before we stayed there drove to beaconsfield each day to do the news we won the ratings every night that week and um the two miners came out there was a happy ending in the end but we don't forget the miner who was killed in the anzac day um cave-in um that had a had a good angle to it because of what happened but most of all news is a pretty you know grim business a, a lot of it is bad news um, but that's the nature of the beast. There's nothing we can do about that. And um, I remember 
being sent out to uh, cover, I was at Channel 9 at the time, and I was sent out to, we were heading to a job for sport, the sports department, and we got on, we were told on the radio, you're being diverted to Lang Lang. The Channel 7 choppers crashed, the news chopper, and we said, oh, right, okay, okay, we're heading there now. And we got down there and we just saw the helicopter in the paddock with the charred bodies still in the chopper. Jesus. And you're just seeing it and you're going, holy. And then you, you find out who they are. It's a cameraman, he's assistant cameraman and a, a junior reporter, female, who we'd worked with and bumped into just a couple of days hence at a media conference. Here they are in, in the chopper. There's no counselling for any of us. You know, when we get when we get back to the office, uh, we file the story, and um, that's it. You get up, dust yourself off, and go home. Get some sleep, and come back and do it again. And that's that's that was just the nature of the job. These days, thankfully, it's a lot different. You, you, it's there's help there if you need it, but I haven't had to go to that so far. But it's a tough job, and and you do have to you know take that into account. Wow. Mm. I was going to say, like, uh, of all the experiences that you've taken on over the course of your 40 years, I think it is. Yeah. How do you handle these experiences? What tools have you got that you can share with people watching this now? Okay. Well, one thing is that when I um, started as a cadet, uh, I was I was told that um, there was a part-time journalism course at RMIT available if I wanted it. It's up to me. And I, and I thought to myself at the time, you know, I should do that in case something doesn't work out with Channel 9. I've always got, I might have a degree I can fall back on. I could get a job elsewhere. Um, and I remember going to the lectures and, and taking the notes and and one day the lecturer got up and said, now, I'm just going to prepare you all because at some stage in your life as a reporter, you will get to see your first dead body. And it's up to you as to how you handle that. And I, I'm sitting there listening and I thought to myself, I saw my first dead body about three months ago in a car. We were sent to cover a car smash and there was the body in the car, in the wreck. And I thought, I'm ahead of you here, mate. Uh, I'm learning more on the job than I am here. So I, I bailed out after the second year and just I said to the boss, uh, I, I'd like to do full-time. He said, yep, no worries. That's fine. Um, when it comes to that sort of thing, like seeing bodies and and the hardships and, you know, being in the middle of Black Saturday, there's nothing you can do but disassociate yourself from it and say, it's nothing to do with me. There has to be sympathy for these people. Take yourself out of the equation. And I, to this day, I don't like reporters who make themselves the story. Um, that's not what we're here for. We're here to show the viewer uh, what's happened, to give them the truth as much as we can. And part of that is you know, the gravity of the situation. So with Black Saturday, you just have to report the facts as they are. Um, and then we, we were there at Whittlesea and a guy came down and said, did you hear that Brian Naylor and his wife had been killed? In the, and, and Brian Naylor was a mentor of mine, news reading mentor, and I was absolutely shattered. And But again, as I was still presenting the news from there, you can't let that get in the way. You can't break down in tears because... Um, you're not getting your message across. You're not. You're not being a professional, and that was always my uh, at the forefront of my mind was maintain your exterior. Always think of this as a professional job. 
you are presenting the news and people are relying on you for that information. So pull yourself together, mate. And that's what we did. Wow. When you're at home and you've got non-TV related stuff that you're dealing with, are you able to dissociate that stoic exterior and just be a human being? Yes. Well, uh, uh, maybe my wife wouldn't agree with that. um, Philippa? Philippa, that's right. Hi, Philippa. Yes, hello, Philippa. Um, She probably wouldn't agree with that because um, there are some facets of my life that she thinks um, I come in the door and I'm not Peter Mitchell newsreader anymore. I've always tried to make a, a, a big point of that and part of getting over seeing some of the nasty stuff is getting in the door and playing with your kids because they don't know me as, you know, the newsreader. They see, I, I'm, I'm their dad. So I get in the door and that, that sort of immediately, it's like taking a coat off. The Peter Mitchell newsreader coat hangs up there and then I become Peter Mitchell husband and father. Um, and I differentiate distinctly between the two, distinctly between the two, because uh, that, that's been something that has got me through this far is having that family life uh, completely away from the news desk. Because your family life is something that we've spoken off here that's super, super important to you and the impact that you've had on your own five children. Why is that? Because uh, the way I was raised, Laban, was um, uh, I'm, I'm the product of a loveless marriage. My mother and father uh, both got together off the rebound. So they were both engaged and both uh, cancelled them uh, and met each other, uh, had three kids. I'm the middle one, uh, three boys, and um, sort of dived into community life. They, they always, Dad was always involved in Apex, um, Mum, uh, Girl Guides, and, you know, we were all in the Scouts and Cubs and everything else, and they were always community-minded. My dad ended up becoming mayor of Frankston, uh, became a local councillor and then became mayor of Frankston. They were in, in the mayoral year, which is your 12-month term from the middle of the year to the middle of the next year, the financial year roughly, um, we hardly saw them. They were out every night at functions and I was babysit by my older brother and um, we were basically just left to our own devices. Occasionally we'd come to, um, if they were open, like Dad was opening a soccer club, we'd be invited, we'd tag along with them. But they, they, after, after the mayoral year, they, um, they sat us down and said, well, because I remember complaining to my mother saying, we never see you, you're always out. What's going on? Um, and she sat us down and said, um, we decided we're going to uh, get out of the rat race, as she called it, and we're going to buy a country pub. It's something your father's always wanted to do, and we're going to do it. I've gone, boy, that means changing schools. Okay. Um, righto. So we went and we bought a, or they bought a pub just north of Shepparton, a place called Catamatite, a lovely little place, made some great friendships there. Um, but again, it, was a, a, it seemed to be another focus for them to try and focus on something else to try and keep their marriage together. Um, and in the meantime, we, the fighting continued. Like I, as a young boy, I remember awful rows inside the house, fighting and 
even broken crockery and all that sort of stuff and thinking to saying to my younger brother what's going on they just don't they don't love each other and we were showered with love from both sides um put through school uh, everything they did everything for us but they just didn't love one another and we never saw that uh, i got to see it when i started going out with my wife i saw her parents and i said there you go. That's how you do it. They're in love. Isn't that great? Uh, they were they were great role models for me, my my in laws, because they were just a devoted couple to each other. They respected each other, and uh, they became my surrogate parents. Being that's the way you do it. The, the you're showing me the path. My parents. My mother later told my my brother, "We only stayed together to get you through school." And we said to her, once they're through school, that's it, it's over. Now, we didn't know that until they said, that's it, dad, your dad's moved out. I said, what do you mean? Yeah, he's gone. Uh, after, he, after he renovated her, her granny flat, she gave him his orders, nick off, that's it. He left and he was at a, at a bit of a loose end. And um, it's because of that lack of love or a lack of seeing a couple in love that I strove that um, I'm never going to do that to my children. Uh, um, I, I'm going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to show them, you know, that we can be better than that. And that's what I've tried to do. Do you think your wonderful Philip has been instrumental in helping guide you through some of that stuff that you wouldn't have even known about? I don't know where I would be without her, Laban, to be quite honest. Uh, you know, you, you talk, people often mention rock. It can, it's a term often used, but, She's way beyond that. If I, if I didn't have her, I don't know where I'd be. I could be. You know, I, I'm sure I would have been able to, to keep going, but um, just to have that solidarity behind me, knowing that when I get home, she'll be there with the kids and the house will be in order. And even when I'm away, it's all, it's all being looked after. Just to, to have that reliability has been an absolute godsend. I don't know where I'd be without that. Fantastic. Yeah. God bless you, Philip. You've done, done a great job by this. Anything. <laughs> <laughs> You're, um, the best way to educate your children seemingly was leading by example. I don't have any children as yet. I'm working furiously on it, and that's what I'm going to do. But I, it seems to be a reoccurring theme. Leading by example is the best way to, to inspire your children to follow, you know, those, those core values. Yeah. For people that aren't your children, what are some tips or some guidance that you can suggest to help people avoid the same trap that your mum and dad ended up in? Yeah. Look, it's, it's, it's difficult. I, I think, so you, you can only think that they thought they were doing the right thing. They, they just thought, oh, yeah, this is, what, this is what happens. You get married, you have kids. Oh, hang on, somewhere down the track they think, oh, maybe he's not the right one or she's not the right one. Um, so find the right one. That helps for a start. But when when you're um, when you're um, uh, that father figure, it's a massive responsibility to bring a life into the world, and that's what I thought when I became a dad was, okay, this is serious. We, you're in the big time now. You've got a life to look after. Becomes two. We had a big gap, and then had another three, only because we love kids. It was great having them around, and uh, they've 
incredibly, and this shouldn't surprise anybody, but all five have been completely different from each other. They've all got their different idiosyncrasies and personalities, which is great, as they should. But we've always just tried to maintain something that I learned from her in-law, uh, her parents, my in-laws, was that just try to do the right thing. Be responsible. Uh, one of the one of the problems, the biggest problems I've found in as an adult is that the most stressful position you can be in is to be in financial trouble. If the bills are coming in and you haven't got enough to pay and you've got to think of on your feet and, you know, the school fees are due or whatever and you're in financial trouble or the mortgage, you can't pay it. We went through a time when interest rates hit 17, 17% and um, it's just you, you feel like you're drowning. You've got to get yourself out of financial trouble. You, whatever it takes, you've got to try and... Um, just be responsible, not bite off more than you can chew and chew like buggery. That doesn't work. Uh, you've, you've got to be responsible and, and keep things in check. So um, that's a, a very important piece of advice is, you know, some of the most stressful times you can have are, are due to finances. So get, get them in order. But also just try to, you know, be your own moral compass. You know, you you know the difference between right and wrong. And this is what I've, I, we've passed on to our children. Always try to do the right thing. You know, um, these days with uh, with racism and sexism, ageism, all these isms, uh, pass them on and say this is this is the way we play it. It's up to you. Um, have a broad mind by by all means. You know. Um, uh, you know, it's just, it's just sending the right message and, and doing the right thing in, in this modern world where you've got to, you know, you can easily get your, set your foot out of, off the straight and narrow, especially on social media or, or other platforms. There are so many pitfalls out there, um, minefields everywhere, and you've just got to be so careful. Well, I was going to say, Peter, like in terms of what's happening in the world at the moment, it, it, you know, I'd never want to make this a focus on the whole COVID scenario, but there's uh, most people, if not everyone's entering a phase in humanity that no one's got any experience at all. There's no rule book anywhere for this. Mm. And the the financial pressure side of things is certainly one that I, everyone that I know has been affected in some way, shape or form. What are some of the other mental toughness strategies that they can implement to help in, th- in through this period? That's a very uh, big question because uh, we don't know where we're going. We don't know where this is going to end. If it is going to end, are we ever going to be able to travel overseas in the foreseeable future? Who knows? Um, all we can do, and I, you know, my heart goes out to all the people who've lost their jobs and who've had to turn their lives upside down because of this. But, you know, Again, I'm a very fortunate one because I'm considered an essential business. So the news will still be there and Channel 7 is still operating. Um, It's been so important to have the AFL keep going so that revenue comes in for the game, but also advertisers come in, uh, are paying Channel 7 and and keeping our wages there. 
but for people in the hospitality business and, and tourism, and, and you know, my heart goes out to all these people who've suddenly lost their jobs and are treading water at the moment, seeing their savings, if they've got any savings, running out, thinking, where is this going to end? Um, all I can suggest is that you keep a rational head about it. Don't panic too much. Um, there is assistance out there for, for people who need it. And if you do need help, the first thing you should do is put your hand up and don't sit back quietly. Um, find a good person or, or a, you know, the, the right avenue, but please put your hand up and ask for help because um, that's one of the most important things you can do. I remember the Liz Brown quote off camera and it was along the lines of ask for help, not so that you may appear weak, ask for help so that you may remain strong. Isn't that fantastic? That says it all, doesn't it? I think um, we're very blessed with the Melbourne University Cricket Club that we're involved with to be associated with Hugh van Kylenberg from the Resilience Project. And through a lot of the work he's done, they've worked out through this GEM program, which is Gratitude, Empathy and Mindfulness, uh, these wonderful mental toughness or mental techniques that we can help to bring us back down to that calm state and by being grateful for the for the wonderful things that we do have as long as you've got the hierarchy list of needs you've got food in your stomach clothes on your back and a roof over your head you're doing better than you know a large percentage of the global population uh the empathy is very important but not pitying it's i think it's really important the thing that you touched on in terms of you know, remaining that um, that stoicism as well. Um, but, yeah, reaching out and and asking for help when you need it. It's, you know, there's people taking the dole. You know, I had to jump on job seeker for the first time in my life. Mm-hmm. Always swore black and blue that I wasn't going to do it. And it's like, do you know what, right now, until I get other things sorted, you know, that's what I'm going to have to do. Do it. And, and you've got to... You know, you've been in the media game for 40 years. You've been through recessions, 9-11, Princess Die dying, Black Saturday, a bunch of other natural disasters. Do things get better? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a very good question. There are good times. Good times come and go. There are bad times as well. It's a lot of bad news in there. But the thing I've noticed is that it's, it's, it's pretty much been the same journey all the way through. Yeah, there are you know, ups and downs. Um, peaks and valleys, but ultimately it's it's the straight line, and that's always been my rationale through it all. But when you talk about gratitude, I heard James Taylor say this recently: gratitude is the is the right attitude, and I'll leave you with that platitude. And <laughs> and I, I thought that's that's perfect. You know, I, I'm so grateful for what's happened, uh, good or bad. It's all part of the the that journey of life. And um, if you you know. That was one thing my mother said to me, which was which absolutely knocked me for six. She was a glass half, half empty sort of person. And she said to me, always treat life in a pessimistic way because if something good comes along, it's a bonus. <laughs> and, I, and I couldn't believe what she said. And I said, is that honestly your attitude? And I didn't know if, if she was taking the piss or what <laughs> or whether she was you know, trying to mess with my mind. But I couldn't believe what she said. But I'm the opposite. I'm the opposite. I, 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 I'm grateful. I, I'm, I'm positive. I have a positive attitude and, and that's my view is that um, good times are ahead. 
you are an incredibly positive individual. And, and uh, I've got two questions left for you, Peter. First question, what's your proudest achievement in TV or media? My proudest achievement is um, my longevity. Being able to say he's a reliable guy, he'll be there to do the news when you need him to do it, just by turning up. And we, we talked about this before. Um, reliability, I think, is a, is a fantastic uh a, fa- a fa- fantastic thing to have, just to be reliable. They can count on you. And he, he, he turns up, he's on time, and he'll be there. So that would be my number one thing. It was noted. You were 10 minutes <laughs> early, which is fantastic. A man after my own heart. If you know my father, Rick, who's very, he, he'll never be late for anything. Yes. My final question What's your favorite dad joke? <laughs> you know, these. The thing about these dad jokes is that um, it started out as just this, you know, you get them in the Christmas bonbons. And um, I, was, I always enjoy, you know, Christmas days certainly, but my kids were saying, uh, yeah, your dad jokes are so bad, you know. I said, well, that's the whole point of a dad joke. Um, and they said you should put them on social media, put them on Instagram, which I was doing. And as soon as I've done them, I forget about them. Um, but my most recent one was, what do you call the dog that's also a magician, that special breed of dog that's also a magician? It's a labracadabrador. <laughs> and I, the kids just went, what? I said, yeah, abracadabra, labra, you know, they had to spell it out for them. But those sorts of things, you know, they're great. They're fantastic. You're, you're not harming anybody. You're putting it out there. Oh, look, if someone gets a chuckle... How good is that? I'm not going to be a stand-up comic. I'm not changing jobs or anything, but uh, I might one day. Who knows? Well, given what's happening in the world, Peter, any, everything's on the table. <laughs> yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure, delight. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us some really amazing, intimate thoughts and some really helpful tips. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Mitchell. Laban, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me in your house. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available and not only just bring them on but to develop relationships with them that build into know like and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire you'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience go to podcastingheroes.com it's p-o-d-c-a-s-t-i-n-g-h-e-r-o-e-s.com